I created my How to Be a Man podcast because I don't want my son to learn how to be a man from Donald Trump. I don't want my son to brag about abusing women, act like a racist, or film himself shooting beer cans with a military weapon because a multinational corporation printed a rainbow on them. It is that vision of masculinity which elevates and values violence, judgment, and brutality while mocking virtues like sacrifice, moral courage, and social courtesy I see too much of. So I created How to Be a Man as a place where we can have these conversations. Episode one, my inaugural episode, features Brian Carso, an old friend. He's a former attorney, currently a writer and history professor at Misericordia University. His specialty is Benedict Arnold, and his book, Gideon's Revolution, is to be released in September. Among many other topics, we contrast being a man during the American Revolution to being a man today. All right, well, Brian, listen, right. thanks for being my first guest. My um, pleasure. Uh, I, there's so much to tell about about uh, how long I've known you, which we're going to skip through. But I do want uh, all of the listeners to know a little bit about your background, specifically as it relates to the American Revolution. So um, I'm going to give you the floor for just a few minutes to tell the listeners about your book um, and anything else you think is important. Well, thanks, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, and I've known you for a long time, and I know you have... Uh, some very well thought out ideas and you articulate them really well. So I've enjoyed listening to your uh, previous podcasts and it's certainly a pleasure to be your first guest on this one. Yeah, back in law school, when you and I were back in law school quite a while ago, I wrote a law review note on the treason clause of the Constitution, which is the only criminal law in the Constitution. And I went off and practiced law at a big firm for several years, but then I decided I wanted to pursue kind of a legal history um, PhD. So I went and did that and ultimately came back to the question of, of uh, treason, um, wrote a dissertation and a book about the meaning of treason in the United States. Which came the, out being, the book is being published. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that book came out way back in 2006. Um, and it had a chapter in it about, of course, Benedict Arnold, because while it was a legal history, looking at court cases and so forth, it also was kind of a cultural history. And it talked about how the story of Benedict Arnold has become, uh, you know, kind of code word for this difficult, abstract idea of you know loyalty, betrayal, allegiance, political obligation. Lots of times we'll just say, oh, that person is a Benedict Arnold to kind of encapsulate mm-hmm. all these difficult ideas. So I noticed when I was doing the research for that, that there was a little known episode, true fact, where after Washington um, found out that Arnold had betrayed him at West Point, um, Washington launched a secret spy mission to capture Benedict Arnold. And of course, there isn't a lot known about it because it was a secret mission. But I thought, well, this will either make a nice, short academic article or a really cool historical novel. Brian, one of the few things that I know about Benedict Arnold is that he was a uh, that he was a, he was a skilled warrior and a respected general. Is that right? Yeah, he was America's best battlefield general. Um, what he wasn't terribly good at was being a political general. Um, so whenever he got involved in politics, that was not his forte, and he got enmeshed in a number of controversies. But on the battlefield, there was nobody better. Some of those controversies involved, right, it was 13 independent states, and they were all out for their best interests. 
Arnold was from Connecticut. He was perceived as a Connecticut general. And there were New Yorkers and Virginians and Pennsylvanians and others uh, who were all vying for, you know, higher position. And when Arnold had to kind of get involved in the politics of that, he he got kind of belligerent and um, did not succeed at the politics. Fascinating. Uh, And I I can't wait to read your book. Yeah. So if I may, Frank, the, the book it became a historical novel about the plot to capture Benedict Arnold. Uh, that's at the heart of it. It's a spy novel during the American Revolution. But it also looks at Arnold's life, tries to get inside his head. Why did he? Why did America's best battlefield general betray the Patriot cause? And um, how can we understand, even today, these issues of loyalty, betrayal, allegiance, political obligation, and treason. I mean, it's certainly relevant to today's political conversation just as much as it was. I don't know what you're referring to. How could it possibly? (laughs) One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on as my first guest is we're not taking an historical narrative of the issue of how to be a man, but um, what little I know, at least compared to you, about manliness, manhood, being a man in the 18th century, especially during the time of the founding fathers, was was the sense of honor that there were some there were some challenges to one to a man's honor that had to be answered with blood and that led to dueling and the most famous duel of all between Aaron Burr and James Madison. Um, talk about that a little bit. Aaron Burr and um, Alexander Hamilton. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah you know, Frank, it, to talk about manhood in the 18th century, you have to begin right with some a premise that is different from the 21st century, which is that there were very separate spheres of domesticity, um, that men were uh, given the task of, you know, financial, looking out for the finances of the family, making ends meet, uh, and uh, being involved in, in the politics. And women took care of the, the raising the children, the emotional life of the family, generally the religious life of the family. Um, and, and there wasn't a lot of crossover there. You know, in the world we live in now, it's a much different situation. So when we talk about, um, you know, what it meant to be a man in the um, 18th century, you know, there are a lot of things that can um, explain that. And particularly, right, I mean, you mentioned honor. Um, that's an extraordinary, extraordinarily important thing to think about in the 18th century. If I can begin with the idea, you know, a number of different um, factors go into what we mean when we say honor in the 18th century. And if I may, um, let me begin with fame. Um, uh, a historian named Douglas Adair wrote a book in the 1970s called Fame and the Founding Fathers. And um it what he what he showed was that now fame was not what we think about today like celebrity but rather it was how future generations will think of me um and that i can gain future renown through great acts of public service and and as an observation i i, I you know it feels very roman it absolutely is roman frank and that's um when we think about it, right, that's what the education was of people like Hamilton and Aaron Burr and Madison Jefferson and so forth. They studied the you know classical antiquity um, and and history, 
And if you studied antiquity, you would, uh, you know, I'll, I'll share something from Tacitus, right? A great uh, Roman historian. And he said, this is what historians do. This is why you should study history. I'm going to quote here. He said, this I hold to be the chief duty and office of the historian to judge the actions of men to the end that the good and the worthy may meet with the reward due to eminent virtue and that pernicious citizens may be deterred by the condemnation that waits on evil deeds at the tribunal of posterity. So fame, which was something very important to the founders, was they constantly asked themselves the question, how will my actions basically go down in the history books? They recognized that they were in a very historical, historically important moment. Um, how will I be perceived in the history books? It's one of those questions we ask about people like, say, Rudy Giuliani today. Right. You know, there's a great story about, uh, there's a cartoon about like Rip Van Winkle, a Rip Van Winkle character, right? Who falls asleep for 20 years and comes back. And uh, when Washington Irving wrote that story, it was about Jacksonian America. But if you wrote it today, one of the first questions that Rip Van Winkle would read upon opening a newspaper is, you know, what the hell happened to Rudy Giuliani? Uh, you know, he went from America's mayor to this utterly corrupt sort of farcical figure. Uh, he he you really know, did, Brian. press conferences at, at Four Seasons Landscaping while hair dye drips down his face. I remember after 9-11, um, he was a comfort to everyone, even me. Mm -hmm. I remember, I'll never forget what he said. How many we we the the smoke was was still coming up from the the towers, and the question he was asked as mayor was how many people lost, and his answer was I don't know, but it will be more than we can bear. Yeah. Well, that kind of fame that that Rudy Giuliani is not perceptive of. I mean, he's not thinking about how will I be perceived in the future, because he he, he was in a great position for the history books. And, and he's blown it, right? This right. was a, a huge concern for um, the founders, was this notion of fame. And it's combined with an idea of character, right? Which, which you could define as personality with a moral dimension that determines a person's social worth. So, you know, if we want clues into what does that look like to our founders, we can go to George Washington's code of civility, the rules that he had um, that he copied down over and over for just basic how to behave so that you will be respected. Or even better, my favorite book in all of American literature is Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. And the second part of this three-part book is Franklin as a young man trying to figure out a, a sort of moral system that he can live by that would make him a good citizen. Uh, so, you know, and, and so you look at, he lists things like temperance, order, resolution, frugality, industry, um, cleanliness, moderation. Um, and he describes that all of these make him A, a better person individually, but B, and equally as important, a better member of a community. That's the key thing, Brian, that I, that I have focused on about uh, sort of the notion of being a man right now. 
one of the things that I sort of meditated on, and, and you and I grew up under similar circumstances. Um, yeah. We're both uh, upper middle class white men, well-educated who grew up in upper middle class white suburbs. And there's no sense, there's a question in my mind that people like you and I were privileged. We had opportunities that other people didn't have. But what struck me, at least the way that I was raised, is with that privilege comes some responsibility. You, as a man, for example, have to protect and, and enrich the community. You protect children. You protect women. You protect those people who can't protect themselves. And I sense in the, this, as I, and what I'm thinking of when I say current notions of manhood, I'm thinking of men with AR-15s shooting at beer cans because somebody has put rainbows on them. And I'm thinking there's no sense in this notion of, let's call it MAGA manlyhood, that there's any responsibility for anyone else. In fact, it's a sense of, of utter anger that a, a corporation could recognize someone who is not them. It would be unrecognizable to the founding generation as any sort of code of manliness. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I agree with you, Frank. The code of, and now look, first of all, with the caveat that every society has its issues and its problems and people, some people succeed better than others. And not things are certainly not perfect in the 1780s and 1790s and so forth. But the aspiration, at least, to live a life of honor and good reputation and character and fame where future generations look back at your deeds and admire them um, is a much different thing than the idea. That is, a, a, that is manliness in the late 1700s. It's not manliness today. And, and some of you know this conversation we're having has been inspired by the MAGA crowd and Josh Hawley, the, the senator from Missouri, his new book about, you know, how to be manly. And, you know, certainly there are things in there, like if you're a father, you should stick around and support your kids and so on and so forth. Everyone's going to agree with that. But let's be clear. The 18th century idea of manliness has leaders who identify virtuous behavior and they try to bring other people around to follow that virtuous behavior as well. Not leaders who lie um, and who are only looking out for immediate self-gratification. I want to stay in office. I want the power. I will say whatever I need to say to do that. That's Josh Hawley's idea of manliness. It is not a historical idea of manliness. In fact, it's quite the opposite. How do you think we got there? How do you think we got to the point where, you know, it, it's become so twisted in this way that, that, and I, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to, to suggest that the, the values of man, of manlyhood, manliness, uh, have been twisted from the 17th century to basically to, to equate them with violence. It's a good question. I mean, Let's take George Washington again. One of the great moments of Washington's career happens in Newburgh, New York in 1781. Um, and basically, right, Washington has defeated Cornwallis and Yorktown. He's moved the Continental Army up to the Hudson River to Newburgh. And they're camping out for about a year and a half because 
course, there's no internet, there's no fax machines. If you want to negotiate a peace treaty, you're sending people across the Atlantic Ocean on boats to, to negotiate that. So it's a lengthy process. And it's a recognition that, hey, look, if we don't have a peace treaty, we might still need our Continental Army. So Washington's in Newburgh. They're waiting to see if a peace treaty is going to be agreed to. And it's pretty rough going for the Continental Army. The um, Congress in Philadelphia isn't isn't paying the army. The army, you're right, they want to go back home to their farms and families. Uh, their supplies are not great. And a number of officers decide, hey, you know, we ought to do what the rest of the world has usually done in history, which is to install a powerful leader. Call him a king, call him an emperor, call him whatever we want. But Washington's our guy. We like Washington. And so Washington, so they, they're meeting about how about we get the army together and we march down to Philadelphia and we install George Washington, a military strong man who will straighten everything out. And Washington gets word of this and he gives his famous Newburgh address. He calls all his officers together and he says, essentially, you know, this is not what we fought for. We fought to establish and preserve a republic, um, a, a virtuous republic. And what he's doing, right, is he's, he's echoing the, the famous story of Cincinnatus, um, a Roman general who had retired to his farm, but when his city-state is attacked, uh, the leaders of the city-state call on Cincinnatus to uh, defeat the invaders, and Cincinnatus does. And when he comes back with his army, they present him with um, essentially the charter to the city and say, you are now the ruler. And Cincinnatus says, thank you very much, but that's never what I fought for. This is a republic. I'm going back to my farm. And that's what George Washington does. My point, you know, Frank, is part of it is, is the virtue at work here uh, and the rejection of power in favor of principle, but also an awareness of history that there have been people for thousands of years who have confronted the same problems we confront, granted in different formats, but the same sort of human dilemmas that we confront, who have worked them out and figured out what's the right way to go and what's the wrong way to go. And you, you know, you got to ask yourself, what part of that kind of um, understanding of human history is unavailable to people like Josh Hawley and Rudy Giuliani right now? Well, it's a, I don't think it's a question of availability. I think it's a question of rejection of, por of portions of it. And to take, uh, I'm always one who's been very careful uh, when it comes to historical sort of canceling people. You know, you could say, well, you know, we should never listen. One might say we, we should never listen to George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. They own slaves. Well, that's right, certainly right. quite true. No one is going to at least I'm certainly never going to attempt to defend that. Uh, right. But it was it was a it was a different time. So we have to accept some things from the past if we if we wish to emulate it. But we have to be able to reject other things in the past as we uh, as we seek to emulate it. And I can think of no better example than the Constitution, which memorialized and endorsed chattel slavery uh, and created what I think was our original sin for which we're still paying. Yeah. How do we how do we do that? How do we go back into the past uh, and, and seek to emulate, you know, the, the virtues of Cincinnati and George Washington um, while recognizing that this is the 21st century? 
and it's uh, that voices of, of women of, of people of color uh, were simply were simply silenced. Then, what does it mean to be a man if in, in right now? Yeah, there's there's a lot of you know things to be said about that. I mean, you know, I was just listening to the news this morning, and and you you ask a very large question, and this is just a tiny piece of that. Um, but about uh, Ron DeSantis saying that if he becomes president, he's going to rename Fort Bragg after Braxton Bragg, the Confederate general, right? Um, and, and it, you know, I, I've asked myself and, and, and answered the question pretty easily. Um, well, let me put it this way. About 15 years ago, I was in Richmond, Virginia, and I went to see, you know, Monument Row with all the men on the horse, the Robert E. Lee and the Stonewall Jackson and so forth. And following the George Floyd Black Lives Matters protest, I was in Richmond last summer and, and those statues are all gone. They've been taken down. Good riddance. And yeah. And, you know, why would you so? Can you imagine? Uh, yeah. I mean, like you said, you and I are both white males, but I try to imagine a young black male going to his elementary school, which is called uh uh, Stonewall Jackson Elementary, right? right. Or, uh, I mean, it's just absolutely unacceptable. And the idea to have people who went to war, and let's let's be real, yeah, there were questions about um, national sovereignty versus state sovereignty and so forth, but they were questions that were secondary to the preservation of slavery. The Civil War was the about Civil slavery. The Civil War was and... first and foremost about slavery. And uh, let me interrupt you and, and say that the uh, that that the notion that it wasn't uh, that it was about sort of some sort of tenth amendment state sovereignty uh, is is in my mind equivalent to the big lie. I well put, absolutely. Um, so you know, look, look how long, it's been what over one hundred fifty years since the end of the Civil War, and we're still trying to reconcile some of these ideas that maybe we don't need to uh, celebrate those who fought to extend slavery. In fact, quite the opposite. We shouldn't be naming things after them, you know, put them in their proper place in history. So history takes, I guess, sometimes a long time to get it right. Uh, and, you know, the, the folks who say there's only one history and that's our history and no, I mean, history is a matter of interpretation, and we, we work at it. We try to interpret it, you know, like Tacitus and others have said throughout many, you know, several centuries, um, there are purposes to history and ways to think about history. And I certainly wish some of our political figures, the ones we've talked about, um, would think about that a little more clearly. I don't know what it is that makes them reject any historical understanding, not just of the past, but how they will be regarded by future generations. Well, I think it's politically expedient for them. They perceive it to be politically expedient, so that's what they that's what they do. But maybe we've isolated one thing. Maybe we've said, you know, being a man in 2023 means thinking about what it's like to be uh, an African-American teenager in Richmond, Virginia, who has to walk to school looking at pedestals that, that raise in some hagiography way the people who tried to, who, who sought to enslave people like him. 
and 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 make this a, a country of slaves. How I don't know if that's that's feeling? very that's very woke. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you know, what, that. But that doesn't that say something? I mean, yeah, yeah. A de- definition of manhood that seeks to be inclusive of other people's experiences. And it's become it's it's become a curse word. And I remember yeah. uh, when you know, uh, I think it was I don't remember. I'm 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 57. You and I are about the same age. And I remember some of the, uh, uh, I think it was the Dukakis campaign. If you can remember that far, uh, and one of the ads was, "Hey, Mike." you're a liberal, you know, just, just spitting it out of your, of your mouth as if there's nothing worse you could be called for someone than you're a liberal. And it's just like, well, yeah, pretty much. Right. If you want to call me woke. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll wear that badge. Isn't that, you, you make a fascinating point. If those who remember the Dukakis campaign, uh, Dukakis took a lot of heat for riding or taking a ride in a tank Mm-hmm. With a big helmet on. Well, they look um, silly. Yeah. And, you know, similarly, George H.W. Bush um, was sometimes called a wimp, which is kind of laughable. Um, but he he was on the cover of Newsweek or Time in his cigarette boat off the coast of Maine, you know, zooming along at some high speed. Uh, and, the, and the headline was, you know, George Bush and the wimp factor. Like he was trying to prove that he wasn't a wimp. You know, so, well, you know, so I, I mean, it goes back to like, you know, Theodore Roosevelt or, you know, there, there's been a, first of all, it's time for a woman president in a very big way. But um, we, we've assessed some of our presidents in terms of their manliness. I mean, even Ronald Reagan, the pictures of Reagan chopping wood at his California ranch right? Or wielding a chainsaw. Um, There was this notion that our leaders have to exhibit some sort of manly virtue. And that's oftentimes an outdoorsy toughness, maybe Theodore Roosevelt style. I don't know where Donald Trump fits into that. Um, Um, This is, this is, I think where, where, where it's sort of turned. I, I, I agree with you. Um, you have to sort of come up with these sort of, I, I don't know, cat, you know, I want to say iconic images. Uh, first of all, I was no great fan of George W. George Herbert Walker Bush, but the man was no wimp. I mean, he served in World War II and was a, was a fighter pilot and was shot right. down and nearly right. died in the Pacific. So uh, he used to jump out of airplanes. He did it when he was 80. Right. So, um, you know, the man has earned, you know, respect as, as, as in with the, some of the manly virtues that you and I talk about. He's defended his nation. He's put his life on the line. He was a warrior. Um, but, it, it, you know, the, the notion that, that we now, that, that the, the orange one, I don't really want to repeat his name, um, somehow exhibits these idealist, ideal uh, uh, qualities of manliness. What, what, what has he done? Well, he's he, in the middle of a debate, a primary debate, he talked about how big his penis was. He made a big deal about how he, you know, had extramarital sex with a porn star. Um, and he, he bragged, bragged about physically abusing women. He made fun of handicapped people. Made I mean, we could go through the list. All we, these we things go. that you yeah. would say are, are disqualifying, not just to be president, but to claim you are exhibiting manly virtue, right? It's, it's, an, it's 
it goes back to the AR-15 thing that you were mentioning before. It's pure aggression, right? Pure aggression, not assertiveness, right? So, you know, the, the sort of classic idea of, of manly virtue is that you should be assertive, right? The founders would have said that. They certainly were in leading a revolution. We have certain values. We want to be assertive about protecting them and defending them and promoting them. So being assertive is one thing. That's very different from being purely aggressive. And by that definition, I would say that, and I mean this as a pure compliment, that when compared to Donald Trump or Josh Hawley or Rudy Giuliani, Liz Cheney exhibits manly virtues much more than, than those three men combined. Well, you get no argument from me, obviously. And this is, this, is, this is what sort of made me want to do this podcast. Because the idea, and you have two just wonderful sons um, who, with whom you should be very proud of. Uh, I know that they, uh, they get their, their brains from their mom. True. So I know that they would be far too smart to absorb any of these perverse lessons of manhood that you and I have talked about, that, that, that manliness means, uh, you know, abusing women and is sort of a narcissist, aggressive point. But one of the reasons that I started this podcast is, is I will simply not allow my son to be taught that. I just won't allow it to happen. And, and so I guess my question, and I do have one, is... How do you prevent that? How do you prevent those two wonderful boys from, you know, absorbing these these terrible lessons that they they will see? Yeah, right. That's a great question, Frank. I think part of it is modeling what they see. All right. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, somewhat famously somewhere, said, um, what you do speaks so loudly in my ear that I cannot hear what you are saying, right? Which is a sort of 19th century poetic way of saying, uh, walk the walk. And I'm watching how you walk the walk more than listening to how you talk the talk, right? So, you know, modeling integrity, you know, standing up for um, things you believe in, expressing those beliefs and, and, and they have to be rational beliefs, too. You have to be able to defend them with reason. Um, you know, they can't just be the big lie. Well, I believe the big lie, but I can't prove any of it. Um, you know, that's one way, I think, Frank. The other way is, and, and we have to, in 2023, confront this, is um, teach our kids to be um, smart consumers of information. I mean, that's one of the great challenges. You know, I'm a, a college history professor now. And um, one of my tasks, pedagogical tasks that I take very seriously is that I have to work with my students to teach them to be good consumers of information. To know, you know, Because when you and I were growing up, there were several major newspapers, you know, three TV networks. You know, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Right. But now, you know, to say you know, this overused phrase, do your research, do your research means go find the news, go find the information that matches what you want it to be, because it's all out there. You know, um, you don't have to challenge yourself by considering the news, considering information. You can just find it 
you know, you can start with the premise of what do I want to believe and then go find somebody who is supporting that belief. Uh, so, right. How do we teach our young people to, um, be smart consumers of information and live a life of integrity? I, well, I guess we're going to have to leave that question unanswered for now. Maybe I'll think about it and, and you think about it and you'll come back and you'll answer that question in another episode. Can How's I give that? one more example, Frank? Please. Yeah. You and I had, had talked about this once before, but um, I think probably all the listeners have heard of the story of young George Washington uh, chopping down the cherry tree on his dad's property. And when his father comes out and says, you know, who chopped down my cherry tree? George Washington turns to him and says, I did it. Even though he knows he could be in really big trouble. He says, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree. And that story that has been part of um, American myth and lore for, for nearly a couple centuries goes back to the early 1800s. A guy named Parson Weems wrote these moral stories for children. They were short stories that had a moral that exemplified how you might be rewarded if you exhibit certain virtues. And in this case, this short story says, if you tell the truth to your parents, if you have integrity, if you're honest, you will be rewarded by knowing in your heart that you were like George Washington. And isn't that a good reward? Now, there's another story. We, we started this conversation talking about my, my book on Benedict Arnold that's coming out in September. But there was a similar story called The Cruel Boy. Um, all I mean, these are, these are like two-page stories. Um, and then The Cruel Boy, it talks all about a young boy who took pleasure causing pain to animals and how he would catch insects and pull their wings off how he would take the eggs out of sparrows' nests and smash them on the ground, how he would tip cows over. And it goes on and on with this long list of grievances about what this young boy would do to animals and how people in town would tell him, stop, don't do that. But he kept doing it no matter what. He wouldn't take instruction from anybody. Um, and he grows up, it, it reveals at the very end, he says his his the, the town that he was born is ashamed of him, and his name is Benedict Arnold. So the wow. idea, and now there's there's nothing in the historical record to suggest that Benedict Arnold was cruel to animals, nothing at all. Um, but it was told as a moral story so that, right, if you, young man, are cruel to animals, well, then your punishment is that in your heart, you're like Benedict Arnold, right? So and, and history will regard you in that same light. History will regard you as an American, as a traitor. Yes. And it, it, it has some notion of fame that we talked about earlier for the young person. Too. If you want to be regarded well, if you want to be a person of good reputation, you should behave a certain way. And this certain way is illustrated by thinking about our history. It seems like a good place to stop, Brian. Um, is there anything else? Uh, on no, the but let's let's pick it up someday as you, as you do more of these conversations. Um, I'm I'm always happy to to uh, resume. I look forward to hearing them. Uh, I Tell, think it's what's an the title of your book? Uh, what's the title of your book coming out in September? My book is a historical novel called Gideon's Revolution, 
Uh, it's being published by Cornell University Press, and it's coming out in uh, September of 2023. If you go to my website, briancarso.com, uh, you'll see lots of information about Benedict Arnold, also some information about where I'm going to be doing some speaking engagements this fall. And uh, if you order the book from the website, you'll see there's a code for a 30% discount. So it's briancarso.com. Very nice indeed. Make me a promise, Brian, that we will do this again after your book is uh, is published and that we'll do it in Pennsylvania after you and I do some fly fishing in the Delaware. Oh, my goodness. We do need to do that. Brian, Brian Carso, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, and look for uh, his book coming out in September, a link to which you can find right here. Thank you again, Brian. Thank you, Frank. Our discussion with Brian Carso was great. I thank him again for his time, and I look forward to his book in September. Join us next week, episode two, which features John Lear, writer, producer, and actor, best known as the Geico Caveman. We talk about Harvey Weinstein, the Me Too movement, and making everyone feel comfortable on a TV set. How to Be a Man, where mature men manfully discuss the making of the modern man. There will also be women. Exclusively here on my Substack. <laughs>